Hi, and welcome to episode 12 of CavalierCast, The Civil War in Words, a podcast which looks at everything and anything to do with the wars of the three kingdoms. If you've listened previously, please could you consider rating the podcast, and if you're a new listener, then welcome to the show. In this episode, I'll be taking a closer look at one of the more controversial characters of the civil wars, Queen Henrietta Maria, wife of King Charles I, and in particular, her life up to her husband's execution in 1649. To do this, I'll be speaking to the excellent historian, writer and broadcaster, Leander Delisle, who is currently researching Henrietta for a forthcoming book. Leander has previously written three books about the Tudors, but has always had a long-standing interest in the Stuarts, which stemmed from reading the iconic books of Dame C.V. Wedgwood, The King's Peace, The King's War, as well as The Trial of Charles I. This led to her writing The White King, which re-examines King Charles I and his life and times, and which was Time's Book of the Year 2018. This episode of Cavalier Cast is the first of a two-part instalment. The second will go on to examine Henrietta's relationships with her surviving children after the wars and during their exiles, along with her role post-1660, when the monarchy was restored with her son, King Charles II. Henrietta, a devout Catholic, was born on the 25th of November 1609. Her father was King Henry IV of France. She married at the age of just 15 to the Protestant Charles. I asked the wonderful members of the Cavalier Cast Facebook group about their thoughts on Henrietta Maria, and it seems that she still polarises opinion. However, there were clear patterns. By far the most frequent words used to describe her were brave, single-minded, and self-assured. On the flip side, she is also seen as intolerant, too strong of character with an unwillingness to alter her approach. There is also the feeling that we still tend to view her through the eyes of the men who won the civil wars. So without further ado, welcome to Cavalier Castleander. It's a real pleasure to speak to you. So you've already written a biography about King Charles I called The White King, which rebalances what we know of Charles and how he's portrayed. Um, and you're currently researching Henrietta for a forthcoming book. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about that and, and if it will complement The White King? Yes, um, I think it will. Um, I've been really enjoying the research, to be honest. When I was writing my book on Charles, I was becoming increasingly fascinated by Henrietta Maria, had to sort of make sure I kept her out as much as I could, really. Um, and so now I can, you know, go the whole hog um, and really uh, look at, at her life. Um, and there's certainly plenty of rebalancing to be done and uh, plenty of uh, uh, new things to say and new things to examine, I feel. Um, so it's, 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 it's a ball. Excellent. Yeah. Um, and Henrietta is one of the Civil War personalities who still polarises opinion. So can you sum up her character? She was great fun. Um, this is replaced into the idea of her being frivolous. I suppose that's the danger. But I don't think if you're great fun, that necessarily means you're frivolous. And she certainly wasn't. She was at heart a rather serious person. Um, but uh, she had a tremendous sense of humour and, uh, and great courage. Uh, and so even when sort of terrible things had happened to her, she would sort of tell stories about it against herself and, and, and make jokes about it. 
but as I said, she was also a serious person. Um, she was extremely loyal uh, and loving, uh, extremely loyal to her to her husband and to his uh, dynasty, um, as well as actually to members of her own family, particularly her her mother. And uh, she had tremendous courage. She there were periods in her life when she was extremely ill, but this didn't stop her doing what she had to do. Um, you know, whether it was riding with armies um, or, 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 or sailing uh, during t- tremendous storms when she had to sort of pretend that uh, she wasn't frightened, she was about to drown. Um, so she was all, the, all those things, really, and an, an intelligent woman as well, not particularly well educated, uh, but as the courtier Madame de Motville said, you know, she had, uh, she had great wit, by which they meant intelligence. I mean, she could be demanding, imperious, bloody-minded, but she did have a kind, caring, <laughs> self yes, Her letters are—I find her letters hilarious, actually, because she always has. She has very, very strong opinions and very strong emotions expressed, and she could be also be quite a drama queen. I mean, she really was actually from from her teenage years. Well, even before then, um, it was—you know—I'm I'm about to die, die of misery. They're killing me by being so horrible to me. This is when she was sort of fifteen. And, and, and later on as well, I mean, her life was full of genuine drama uh, and, genuine, and, and genuine suffering and, and genuine terrors. But nevertheless, um, she, didn't, she, didn't, she, didn't, she didn't necessarily play it down, has to be said. But, but kind, caring and selfless as well. I think she was largely selfless. Kind, she could be unkind. Um, she could be quite sharp-tongued. She could be, she could be quite uh, teasing. As I said, she had a sense of humour. People with a sense of humour aren't always kind. And because she was sort of, could be hard on herself, I think she'd probably be hard, she could be hard on others as well and could get quite cross. I mean, for example, uh, when um, um, the, the governess of, of, of her baby daughter, Henriette, in England, uh, didn't sort of flee Exeter in time, Henrietta Maria got extremely angry about it, uh, totally unfairly, as, as someone said at the time, you know, he, this, this poor woman had as much chance of fleeing Exeter with the baby as, as she had of de- defeating Fairfax in battle. You know, she, because she was high-spirited, you know, she wasn't always kind, I would say. I mean, in terms of the image of Henrietta that, that was portrayed by her enemies, do you think that still defines and, and overshadows a so dangerous Catholic, overbearing wife, and even one particular cause of the Civil War? Yes, absolutely. So what you have in Henrietta Maria is a sort of, is like Eve. So on the one hand, Eve is this sort of you know a seductive uh, woman who seduces Adam into into doing evil, um, and on the other hand, is 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 the sort of you know is is the hag. Um, and Henrietta Maria is, is portrayed as both um, the seductress and, and yet she's not even allowed to be attractive half the time. She's supposed to sort of, you know, look, look, look hideous. And, and you see it in time and again with women from sort of Livia um, uh, with Augustus, the Emperor Augustus, you know, when Augustus mm. decided to do something bad, you know, Livia would be blamed. And now we have the figure of sort of Carrie Simmons supposedly pulling all the strings in, in Downing Street with Henrietta Maria. There was a more, there was a very strong political reason at the time for showing her in the worst possible light, um, and that was to sort of make out that the, the king had this sort of evil, evil plan to, to make the country Catholic, and that Henrietta Maria was behind it, and it kind of justified a lot of the extreme actions his opponents took. 
So it's interesting that, isn't it? Because in a way as well, the you know the parliamentarians blamed evil councillors, uh, so the ministers and of state, but. They're also lumping Henrietta into that as well, don't they? She's the ultimate evil counsellor. But I think it's worth remembering as well, um, because there are so many things about this idea of her being a sort of fanatical Catholic is, is absurd, is that many of her sort of close friends early in the reign were protectors of Puritans, people like Henry, Earl of Holland, uh, who um, was even accused at one point of being her lover, um, was a great protector of Puritans and um, became a parliamentarian for part of the Civil War, and his brother was a very leading figure in the run-up to the Civil War and indeed during it. It's a a good point you make there about the fact that she wasn't just surrounded by staunch Catholics or crypto-Catholics, you know, as you say, Earl of Holland, Earl of Warwick. Yes, no, she had a sort of Puritan following in the early uh, 1630s. Um, Because because she was pro-French rather than pro-Spanish, and so she had shared interests with the... um, with with the with the with the so-called with the sort of more Puritan wing at court, and obviously you mentioned the the French connection there. So so I think at first glance it, it can be assumed that she came from a, a secure French royal dynasty that was staunchly Catholic. But really the facts are, are certainly very different, aren't they? Well, her father was brought up as a as a Huguenot and um, became a Catholic really because that's what he needed to do to become a king of France and and. He is, in tradition, he's supposed to have said that Paris is worth a mass. And funny enough, I mean, Henrietta Maria later on, or Henrietta Maria, whichever you wish to call her, um, uh, later on, she does, for example, advise Charles to make compromises on his religious beliefs in order to, to get, get a deal with Parliament and the new model army. Um, later on, I mean, she says he, he should accept Presbyterianism, for example, so she's she's on for compromises that Charles isn't, and she's seen it in her own family. But yes, as you say, also they weren't always that didn't always seem that secure. There were constant small rebellions going on in France, led by disaffected nobles, um, also by impoverished peasantry. Particularly later on, of course, as the taxes became heavier and heavier with the Thirty Years' War. Um, so yes, no, there was a lot of instability in France, which she had witnessed when she was young. Um, she saw her mother overthrown by her brother, her mother's regency overthrown by her brother, Louis XIII. So she saw major family quarrels. She saw fighting in France, um, both before she left and when she came back. Yeah, and her father was assassinated as well. Yes, absolutely. When she was a when she was a baby. Um, yes, and so you do have this 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 poor woman um, the, who is the, the the daughter of a murdered king and the wife of an executed king, a murdered king, you could say. Uh, And did Charles and Henrietta's marriage develop into one of deep love? Yes, I believe it did. In fact, it was a sort of Mills and Boone. I don't even know, you probably don't remember Mills and Boone, which I remember as I was a teenager who had these sort of romantic um, novels. They were all set to a particular path. And I think, you know, so you, you know, girl meets boy, um, girl sort of quite fancies boy, but then girl and boy have a sort of terrible row and there's a frightful falling out and, and then but later on they fall mad in love and this is the sort of <laughs> very much similar path that uh, that uh, Henrietta Henrietta Maria and uh, Charles follow in that they sort of they, 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 they take an immediate sort of liking to each other but then they quarrel very early on um, quarrels encouraged really by Charles's sort of bestie friend Duke of Buckingham um, but um, actually even before Buckingham is assassinated 
her marriage when, when she's 18. You have to remember, she's only a child when she marries. She's only, she's only 15 mm. when she gets married. Um, and probably not even adolescent. I mean, she doesn't become pregnant for years. So she's, she, she may not even be quite adolescent. And, but by the time she's 18, the marriage is already getting better. And, and then I think it does become a true love affair. Yeah, and, and especially after Buckingham's assassination, wasn't it? And she, she really became, well, the king leaned on her quite a lot more, didn't he? Yes, well, up to a point. I think this is sort of um, exaggerated. I mean, she um, takes a particular interest in sort of foreign affairs. As I said, she's pro-French, anti-Spanish um, for many of those early years. But Charles doesn't necessarily listen to her too much on that. And also she feels that she must protect her co-religionists, the Catholics, who are persecuted um, quite savagely in the British Isles. Um, and, and, and who in her shoes would not do that, frankly? Um, and she becomes more successful at that in the lead up to um, the Civil War. But then, of course, it all goes to pieces. Yeah, and, and this is something else as well that, that quite defines her. So I think that there's an assumption that she had an agenda or a mission um, to turn Charles's realms back to Catholicism. So is that an exaggeration or even a myth? I think it's um, an exaggeration. Um, I mean, I think if she, if she thought, oh my gosh, you know, I can, I can achieve this, I can make him look Catholic again, then she might have done, yes. But um, I don't think she ever believed for a minute that was possible. I think what she wanted uh, was to end the persecution of Catholics. You have to remember that at this time, you could execute a Catholic priest for treason simply by reason of his office, i.e. to be a Catholic priest in England was treason and you could be executed for it. And indeed, several of them were during Charles's reign. You couldn't go to mass, which is the um, central act of Catholic worship. And this is something non-Catholics don't often sort of really understand, which is why you need priests, because only you have to have a priest to say mass. It's not like Protestantism, where, you know, you can pray and listen to sermons, and that's the central act of worship. You have, you know, mass is, is the central act of worship. And so you, and you were fined um, if you did not go to Protestant services. And of course, it was strictly illegal and a criminal offence to, to attend mass, and indeed the priest could be executed. So coming as she did from a country where her father and her mother uh, had, um, you know, this edict of Nantes, which meant that, um, you know, Protestants in France were free to practice their religion, then it would have seemed extraordinary to her that you couldn't have an edict of Nantes in, in, in England, too. Absolutely see what you mean, yeah. Yeah, about balancing it a little bit more. Yeah. That's, that's, I think, what she sought. Um, it wasn't that she was sort of running around thinking she's going to be able to convert the whole of England. She wasn't half-witted and that's ironically where where sometimes charles is he can't actually win you know he's portrayed as almost on the brink of converting himself listening to his catholic wife but at the same time as you've said there, there were strict um laws in place uh, against catholics charles was a persecutor of catholics that's the fact and that's why the pope wouldn't help him um when when he married henrietta mariah he had uh, agreed to drop the penal laws against uh, Catholics, as indeed did his father. But um, when, as soon as he, as soon as the ring was on the finger, so to speak, he 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 didn't actually carry out his promises, and the Pope didn't forget that. Um, so no, Charles persecuted Catholics throughout his reign to a greater or lesser extent, lesser um, in the uh, immediate years running up to the Civil War. But he was certainly 
never going to become a Catholic himself. He was a passionate Protestant of a particular kind. Um, he, you know, he had what we would think of as sort of high church Protestantism, Anglicanism. You know, he liked, if not bells and smells, that'd be going too far. But he did like <laughs> music. He was happy to have some images, you know, stained glass and, and things like that. He wanted order in worship, order and ceremony. Um, and to some Calvinists, that looked popish, and understandably so. But it was what it was not uh, was Roman Catholic. He and Archbishop Lord believed that the Church of England was uh, uh, the original Christian church, that, it, that it, it, it had theology and beliefs of the original Christian church and that Rome and Roman Catholicism, Catholicism was an aberration um, and, the, and that the teachings of the Catholic church or many of the teachings of the Catholic church were an aberration from the truth. And he believed that very firmly all his life and Henrietta Maria understood that very well. Uh, and in the eyes of the Puritans, what, what was it about Henrietta that offended them so much? Well, I think some of them probably genuinely believed that um, she was, you know, going to sort of influence Charles into becoming uh, a Catholic. That you know she would have, you know, she would use her sexual wiles in bed to sort of get him to agree to heaven knows what. Uh, but I think a, a lot of the pe- people who sort of knew courtiers, um, essentially, who uh, who um, became uh, Charles's opponents, and knew very well um, that this was untrue just used her reputation and, and, and deliberately exaggerated this reputation um, as a means of attacking Charles, as a means of making him appear more dangerous than he was to, um, to Protestantism and to justify, really, their more extreme actions. We need to take these extreme actions because, you know, we're, on, we're in danger. We're, you know, Henrietta Maria is going to, sort of, she's going to bring over all her sort of Catholic friends from Europe and, you know, we're, you're all going to be forced to be live in a live in a popish tyranny the masks the court masks where she would be on stage you know which, which was quite scandalous yes i mean i think on the strong couch you have to remember whose child she was i mean her father henri cat henry the great um that's her father um she's very much her father's daughter and she's very much her mother's daughter and who was her mother marie de medici I mean, you know, no, no wilting flower. She, um, you know, this, this was, this was a woman who led armies against her own son. So Henrietta Maria came from a background and from a heritage that was, that was, that was of people with <laughs> strong, strong, strong characters. It has to be said. So yes, well, Puritans disapproved of women speaking in public or appearing on on stage. I mean, they, they said there were biblical injunctions against it. When Henrietta Maria was in France, in France they had uh, they had these sort of ballets and masks where she was taught uh, to sing, to speak on stage. She was taught by professional Italian actors, and they were considered the best in Europe. She was a very well-trained performer, public performer, and that had never been seen in England before. They'd had masks, but they hadn't had masks where you had women uh, talking and let alone dressing up in men's clothes and, and playing male roles. And some Puritans, well, in fact, the Puritans generally, but some in particular, like William Prynne, found this extremely shocking and and ungodly and described them as whores. But as I said, it was really about, again, the sort of horror of the idea of women wearing, literally wearing the breeches. 
of women taking men's roles. There was a hierarchy and women were underneath men. Um, and, and if they appeared to be um, taking control in any way or having their own voice, then this was a threat to the divine order. Yes, yeah, so you can see how the, the masks and her part in that sort of played into those Puritan fears. Yes, although she did stop. I mean, you know, quite early on in the 1630s, she she did stop, actually. Well, she didn't stop appearing in masks, but she stopped she stopped talking um, and, um, so, and became silent. Uh, and she would just appear as sort of beauty surrounded by the 17th century equivalent of fairy lights. Um, but it was they were still used as a means of expressing her political views, but quite often they were views about foreign affairs, really, rather than domestic affairs. I didn't know that, that she, um, she actually stopped uh, speaking. Yes, she did, actually, mm. after, Prynne, after William Prynne attacked her. Yes, she did. Right. Um, Which is interesting in, in itself, isn't it, that she, she's moderating her behaviour? I'm sure, I'm sure Charles asked her to, and she, she, she agreed to do it um, on, on that front. But, but mm. she was always capable of compromise, far more so than Charles. Uh, she often asked him you know, to get ahead of the narrative, to, 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 to compromise on this or that, uh, and when he wouldn't. He'd be particularly stubborn. And she, uh, she, would, she would complain to him, look, you, know, you say you're not going to do this, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, and then you do. And she says to him, this makes you look weak. You know, you, you, you should rather than give way, look as if you've been pushed into giving way to something, give something up freely, be seen to give something up freely. Um, and then, you know, you get ahead of the narrative. Very good advice, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and which leads on to the next question very nicely. I mean, you said at the Cheltenham Literary Festival that far from Charles listening to his wife too much, he didn't actually listen to her enough, um, which is a, an interesting point. So what brought you to that conclusion? Well, there are several points in his reign when he'd have done better to listen to her. I mean, as I said, often on this business of getting ahead of the narrative and knowing how to negotiate, really, when to give up what um, um, and when, that, that you can make tactical retreats. You know, she gave him some excellent advice on this, and, and Mazarin found it equally frustrating dealing with Charles and trying to give him advice uh, in his negotiations. But this was before the Civil War as well as after. I mean, Henrietta Marat was trying to get him to, to give things up freely in, you know, 1640-41, before the Civil War, to help him, you know, as I said, get ahead of, of the narrative. So she, she was good in giving him advice on, on that sort of thing. But also, I mean, you know, military advice. Uh, she, she told him to take London in 1643, uh, rather than hanging around uh, besieging Gloucester. And many people, and certainly Henrietta Maria herself, believed that his failure to do that was the turning point of the Civil War. He, he, he frequently didn't listen to what his wife had to say, and sometimes, not always, <laughs> but sometimes she had good advice to give. Yeah, and, and that's interesting to know that she, she was part of that group that were pushing London yes, and I think it. the other thing that's very notable is that is a lot of people turn to her uh, during the Civil War because they see her. And another thing she says to Charles is, you know, you stick to your guns on this or that. You know, you know, keep be consistent. Don't sort of, you know, don't bear the imprint of the last person to sit on you. And people like, for example, Montrose was told, and when he went to see her in 1643, in February 1643, was told, you know, go and see Henrietta Maria, go and see the Queen, because, you know, you, you, you know that she's, she's fixed 
she's a fixed person and you know, you'll get what you want with her whereas with Charles you know he, he'll he'll flip from one thing to another he was a bit of a bit more of a being a bit more of a Boris Johnson yeah she, she was absolutely decisive you, you knew exactly what her view would be exactly and that's another thing she told him you know you've got to be consistent um, um which he which he wasn't always there, there was so much advice that she she did give in in letters as well, wasn't there? She she was quite unnerved, I think, being away from from the centre of things in Holland, for example. Yeah, absolutely, berates him and sort of on and on. No, absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> and there's not a dull letter. There is not a dull letter. I remember got a rather snooty. I had a rather snooty person said that oh, because I discovered I was very fortunate to discover all these previously uh, never uh, seen uh, letters um, uh, in the archives of Beaver Castle written by um, the Queen. And there was one person um, who I think t- took a sort of um, general dislike to my portrayal of uh, Charles. So, oh, no, so these letters, you know, they're not going to be very interesting. Um, you know, they'll be dull. And, and I thought to myself, you know, Henry had nothing to do with me or being lucky enough to find these letters. I thought to myself, Henry was actually incapable of writing a dull letter. I think she was incapable of having a dull word come out of her mouth. So, so do you think that, I mean, ultimately, it's a what-if question, but if he had followed her advice more, do you think things might have been different? It, that, that is, a, that is um, a tricky one. I think Henrietta Mara later on in her life, she looked back and she deeply regretted, because she wasn't, hadn't been particularly well-educated, and uh, she deeply regretted not knowing more about British history. And I think if she had, and he had listened to her then, I think things might well have gone uh, better for Charles. If he did save his bacon in 1642, I don't know, I don't think he would have survived Edge Hill. Um, right. Because, you know, she had raised, she, you know, she had um, done so much to raise all these arms uh, and money in, in, in Europe. Um, and without that, one wonders whether he would have, he would have uh, managed to survive the first great battle of the Civil War. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mammoth Mount, we'll, we'll come on to that in a little bit as well. If, for example, her and Rupert had formed a closer alliance, I mean, that their joint influence might have uh, had a, a bigger well, they effect. They did at one point. Um, they did. I and mean, that was one of the unfortunate things about her leaving Oxford when she did. So they had tremendous rows um, in, you know, when she first arrived in England. Um, she hmm. and Rupert did not agree on, for example, the matter of Gloucester. And again, this, is, this shows that, you know, Henrietta Marais is someone who can be quite quick on her feet. Um, she then um, gets on well with Rupert. And, and it's, it's said, actually, that when she leaves, that he is the only person, she is the only person he will sort of, you know, talk to or wants, you know, to get any sort of advice, advice from. Um, yeah. So they, 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 they are sort of getting together. Um, but then, unfortunately, of course, she, she leaves and that all falls apart. But, you know, she the king is the king. She is only the queen. So she, although she has very much her, her own views and occasionally does disobey, <laughs> does disobey him quite directly. Um, you know, she can't do it all the time. She doesn't do it very often. How much do you think Parliament baited the king by threatening Henrietta? You know, such as impeaching her in 1643 when she returned to England, um, and what impact did that have on the the couple? I think they deliberately baited him with threatening her in um, 1642. I think by 1643, when they sort of, you know, impeached, uh, begin sort of, you know, they begin the process of having her impeached. Um, I think that's more a propaganda thing it, it, that they want, because a, people, a lot of people in England want peace. 
A lot of people in Parliament, on the, you know, when talking about the, the opposition, the people who fought Charles, want peace at that stage. Um, the war party don't want peace, they want war. Uh, and again, so they have to point to a threat. Henrietta Maria is that threat. Uh, the impeachment highlights that threat by describing her as, um, as, this, as this extremely dangerous figure. Um, so I think it is partly for propaganda purposes. And in a way, one also looks at and thinks that it's a way of playing around. Some people there are playing around with the idea of what comes next, where it's an mm. attack on monarchy. Because, you know, at one point during the debates, one of the MPs says that, you know, nobody, nobody is above the law. And nobody obviously includes the king. So, you know, where mm. you're seeing a kind of foreshadowing of his own trial for treason. Yeah, and I mean, considering that Archbishop Lord and the Earl of Strafford had both been put to death, or, yeah, sorry, Lord was later put to death, yeah. both after being impeached, do you think that was a very real danger that she would have been put to death if she was captured? Yes, yeah, so it's kind of, again, this is sort of, I don't know, this kind of fantasy that, oh, no, they would, they would never have killed her. Well, I mean, they actually made... <laughs> They made plenty of efforts to kill her. I mean, they were they they they, they very nearly killed her uh, when she arrived in in Yorkshire in um, 1643. Um, and the descriptions of that are are very vivid. Um, and it wasn't the last time they tried to kill her. I, I also, you know, they they could very easily have killed her when she fled uh, to France in 1644. You know, they were firing cannons at her ship and so forth. Um, and I see no reason at all why they might not have cut off her head. After all, they cut off the head of Mary, Queen, of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was a queen regnant, um, as well as having been a queen consort of France. So why would they not execute another consort? Uh, and you've mentioned there about when she when she landed in Yorkshire. I mean, uh, she could be extremely courageous. I mean, she was bombarded by parliamentarian warships, wasn't she? The cottage that she was living in, and she famously ran back into the fire to rescue a dog mite from the house. That's right. Yes, uh, her little dog um, was an ugly little dog, apparently. Uh, and again, you know, she writes describing it to Charles, and she doesn't hold back, and she says, you know, how she ran and how there was a sergeant was killed in yards from her and she actually hid in the ditch and she describes how the bullets are flying over her head um, and, and the dust is falling on them. It's an incredibly vivid description but it's not inaccurate because there are several other descriptions done by written by people who were there um, describing exactly the same thing um, and you won't find any other princesses in Europe you know, living like that. And in, in terms of um... The, the way that she was used or threatened. Um, I mean, she, she even wrote to the king in 1644 to say that she was taken ship to France after giving birth because she, she really just didn't want to burden him with concerns for her safety or affect his military operations. I mean, she knew that he would send troops to that area to secure her person. That's so true. She? Yeah, she wrote him a letter saying, I know that you would do this for me, but you know you mustn't. And my life is less important uh, than your cause. And... Um, and, and not to send an army. She was extremely ill. And the doctor kept you know, telling everyone she was going to die. There's no way she would survive. Um, and, and can you imagine this poor woman? She's extremely ill. Uh, and um, she's had to leave her, her newborn baby behind and get on a ship mm. to France uh, and, is, and, and, is, and you know, is in battle, is in, under fire again on the, on the, on the, on the high seas. 
really. She later says, like, I think, you know, she, she would also tell stories later if she didn't lose anything in the, in the telling. She says that, um, she said later that she'd said to the captain of the ship, if they look as if they're going to board, you know, you must blow up the gunpowder in the hold and me with it. But, right. but, but actually what she had done is she had arranged that they had a very fast galley in which she could escape if, if it looked if she was an inca- if, if it was if she was going to be boarded. But I do think she was definitely determined not to be captured. And she said several times at the time, frequently while she was in England, it's, it's vital and that I'd much rather be killed than captured. Mm. Because if I'm captured... They will use me to blackmail the king. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good point. And, and talking about the war, the war effort itself, I mean, she contributed immense amounts, as you've mentioned there. I mean, the list: three and a half thousand muskets, a thousand sets of horse armor, six cannon, hundred barrels of powder. You've got two hundred pairs of pistols and carabines. One hundred and forty officers. Immense. Yes, no, absolutely. She did a huge amount in 1642, but also later. But yes, and and ships, and of course, um, so she raised us a tremendous amount of money and arms and men. And when she arrived, she also helped negotiate with with turncoats uh, and helped sort of turn people as well. Um, so uh, that was also enormously helpful. She got Scarborough that way. Get the governor of Scarborough, the military governor of Scarborough, to turn coat or encouraged him to do so. Um, so she got a port as well as ships. She was even styled her She Majesty Henrylissima on her return to England in 1643. Yeah. Well, she, that's right. <laughs> that was one of her jokes, which was sort of turned against her. As I said, she, you know, she had a sense of humour and she, and she told jokes against herself. And so so when she first, when she arrived in England in 1643, she went up to Yorkshire. She was in Yorkshire for a um, um, period of uh, uh, weeks, a few months, and then um, on her way south with the, ar- with the army, she's led an army south, she describes herself to Charles as in charge of the baggage uh, and as the she generalissima. It was, a, it was a sort of self-depreciating joke. But then when Parliament captured some of the king's correspondence at Naseby, they turned this against her and said, yes, look, here she is, she's leading an army. She refers to herself as a generalissima. She's, here she is wearing the breeches again and behaving in a very unwomanly way. So she didn't really personally lead the troops, she, but she was a, a figurehead as such. Exactly. Mm. Um, I mean, she, was, she wasn't there sort of waving her sword on the battlefield. <laughs> but then as, um, and I don't think she'd have been much use if she had it. She was sort of extremely small, um, as she herself points out. And she says another joke she tells about herself, actually, is in Bridlington Bay. She says she, she has to play the captain, although rather small, although being rather small, she's rather small captain. I think she did play, I mean, she, she definitely played a military role. She was on uh, the, the general in the north, the, um, Newcastle. She was on his council of war. So she was discussing military strategy. And she was dealing with military men all the time. And she obviously felt a sort of close affinity with the soldiers uh, that um, had been in the armies in the north. And she, when, she's, when she's in Oxford with Charles, she writes to Newcastle and tells him about how well their men are doing, our men, first, as, uh, the, the ones that she's brought south with her. So she does, she, she certainly feels like a soldier on, on, on one level. Um, as I said, she is, she does, she's definitely playing a military role, although she's not actually going to shoot you in the head. Although I must say, if I think she had a gun in her hand, she'd be perfectly capable of shooting someone in the head. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and, and she most importantly, she, she's leading and motivating, isn't she, really? Inspiring the men. Exactly. She's inspiring the men. And I think she, she, one of the things she brings over with her with her from Holland is a pair of uh, cannon, which are known, big cannon, apparently, which are known as um, the Queen's pocket pistols, I think they were known as. You know, she did without food and without sleep, as uh, soldiers do when she was when she was moving with with her army. You hear her saying, you know, I haven't slept for days, and and I haven't had, you know, I haven't had a piece of meat for for I can't remember how long. Um, you know, you you get you do get the impression that she's she's living the military life. And and how did Henrietta's influence and position change, or or did it change after the king passed into the hands of Parliament as a prisoner? Letters were smuggled to him, but nevertheless, you know, it was obviously became increasingly difficult for people to be in regular contact with him. And so the military effort really centred in the Second Civil War um, on Henrietta Maria, although that was very difficult if she was in France. But yeah, so, it, so naturally it does change. And her children are still very young. Um, I think Prince Charles is 18 in, in, in 1648. So they're still, you know, he's still a very young, he's still a very young man. So she's almost sort of become de facto leader of the cause as such, hasn't she? Yes. No, um, absolutely. Absolutely. And and having to play this sort of role in France as well, she's always having to keep up appearances so that she is the Queen of England as well as a princess of France. So that people will lend them money apart from anything else. She has to give up appearances so people still think there's some chance that, you know, Charles might win, you know, although you know, it's pretty evident that things are going, <laughs> going badly wrong. Um, and so she has to play this role however badly things are going of no it's you know it's all it's all brilliant and you know it's all going to be fine and and i'm a powerful figure and and um and and we're going to win this crown back this is probably where the the training for the masks comes in isn't it yes just just being able to act that part absolutely yeah no no she did she she did know how to how how to play a part and and to always charm I think, again, because of her historical reputation, which is written by people who had an agenda, of course, um, one of the things that is overlooked is that um, she had tremendous personal charm and she was capable of winning all sorts of people around, winning people to her point of view. And uh, she, she used that, uh, of course. And that, that, that always involves a certain amount of acting, doesn't it? And, and she used that in the royalist cause, definitely. So what effect um, did the king's execution have on Henrietta's outlook and her health? It must have been immense. Yes, I think it was, had a devastating effect on her. Um, this was a you know, relig- you know, time where people were very religious, um, and she must have wondered why God had allowed this to happen. Now, Charles had no doubt why God, Charles believed that God was punishing him as well. The one thing he had in common with Oliver Cromwell is they both believed that everything was down to God's providence, you know, God's divine will. Um, and Charles believed that his execution, he, that signing the death warrant, Strafford's death warrant, was, was, was the greatest sin that he had ever committed, the great sin of his life, that he had allowed an innocent man to go to the scaffold. Um, and that his, his losing the civil war and his execution was God's punishment on him for that. We don't know what Henrietta Maria believed, but she must have, you know, she must have thought, you know, this is this is a punishment for God. I think she became. She'd always said that she'd wanted to retire to a, a Carmelite convent, and 
I think she became more and more drawn to that life. But at the same time, you know, she remained very loyal to the Stuart dynasty. And, and so she didn't retire to a convent, much as she might like some peace and quiet. You can imagine it's, it would have been you know, quiet and peaceful there, away from, away from all the sort of drama and horrors that she had suffered, a sort of balm for her soul. But she didn't allow herself to enjoy that kind of retirement at this stage. She, she went on battling and fighting um, for the Stuart cause. Do you, do you think there was ever any rivalry um, that cropped up between Henrietta and, and the young Charles II? Yes, I mean, Henrietta, I think, Henrietta Maria was very much her mother's daughter, Marie de Medici, uh, who, as I said, led an army against her own <laughs> at one point. Uh, Henrietta Maria loved her children, but that doesn't mean that she always agreed with them. Yeah, so they could have ferocious, they could have ferocious fights. She'd seen their father make mistakes, and uh, she she could believe that they were making mistakes too. And she was going to fight her corner. Yeah, exactly. A of action, really. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, if she'd been a man, I think attitudes to her would be would be very different. And I think it's worth, although she did quarrel with her children, I think that I mean it's quite interesting that uh, James, the future James the um, second, after he was overthrown, one of the things he did is he went to see his, you know, mother's grave and and pray. At, you know, for her and to with her um, yes. after his overthrow. Yeah, I think people families quarrel. It doesn't mean there's doesn't mean that they don't love each other. I think many of the complaints about Henrietta Maria is like saying, but you know, she's not doing the things that an 18th century Protestant gentleman would do. You know, you know what it's like? Like, well, no, poo, she's not doing the things that an 18th century Protestant gentleman would do. She's a 17th century. French Catholic, you know. Let's look at things from her perspective. I, I think one of the um, events that a lot of people can't forgive her for was how she treated young Henry um, when he eventually escaped parliamentarian custody. Uh, just, just bringing that pressure to bear on him to convert, um, and then eventually dismissing him and, and saying that she didn't want to see him again. And of course, he died not long after that. Well, can you imagine how she must have felt about that? Mm. We often say things we regret, don't we, in life? That's just that's just a fact. And to have lived with that, I don't I don't think there can be any punishment, posthumous punishment, one could inflict on her that she mustn't have uh, felt herself. But you have to remember the time that you know things aren't things are not going well for the things are not going well for the Stuarts. He's son number three. She has to think. You know how 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 am I going? How my children going to you know do well in Europe? And um, the fact is that you know he he might well have done better um, as a as a Catholic uh, than um, as a as a Protestant. And of course, in addition to that, she would have believed that it would have been better for his soul. So she believed yeah. it was the right religion. But also, if you even if you take the religious element out, there would have been a, there was a practical political purpose for sort of encouraging him to become. A Catholic, from her perspective, she may have believed. Charles II naturally disagreed because he, he saw it as immensely damaging to himself. And mm. I think he was right. But I mean, you, but there was another perspective. Yeah, I mean, that that's a, a really, really interesting take on it, which never considered before, you know, that, that whole political side. So why let all of your children be swallowed up in one cause if you can pluck maybe Henry out and get him allied to... You know, or even ruling potentially a, yes. yeah. a, a different who, court in who, Europe. Who might he be married off to? So, last question: What do you think is her greatest achievement? Sheer survival. 
was it helping Charles survive uh, Edge Hill? Perhaps not, because if he had lost, perhaps that would have been better for everyone if it had happened, mm. if it happened early on, um, rather than years and years and years of terrible suffering for not just the English, but the Scots and the Irish, you know, ultimately for, for, her own, for her own family. I wonder what she would have thought of as her greatest achievement, perhaps that she had a happy marriage. I think that mm. if you look back and look on our own lives, a happy marriage is an achievement um, that you, one would rate above, I think, success of other kinds. Um, your children, um, she never, she, after she left England in 1642, she never saw her daughter Elizabeth again, her little daughter Elizabeth again. Mm. Um, that must have been it's terrible. Tragic. So yeah. able to see her children again at least and, um, and enjoy the love of her, her daughter Henriette Anne at the end in France, I suppose she would have seen these things really as her achievement, her greatest achievements. Yeah, yeah. And, and just knowing that her, her son was back on the throne. Um, Absolutely. And, and actually, she did definitely play a role in that. But I think she would have ultimately said that that was God who had done that. Right. Okay. I doubt if she would have said, I doubt if she would have sat back and said, that's down to me, that is. Um, I think <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That that was God's providence. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing your knowledge and your research. No, thank you very much. I look forward to um, hearing your podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion with Leander as much as I have. Don't forget, this is a two-part podcast with the next instalment due out in early December. For that episode, I'll be chatting to Andrea Zuvik, more commonly known as the 17th century lady, a historian who, as a name suggests, is passionate about the 17th century. You can keep in touch with me on Twitter at 1642author or at facebook.com forward slash Mark Turnbull author. Thanks for listening and take care. Bye.